Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's our pleasure to welcome you to the program and we would like you to stay with us for this hour because we are going to continue to dig into the Bible and to learn some important lessons. We have a brand new study. We are going to look at the book of Ephesians for a number of weeks from now and would love your participation, my dear friend, listening today. You know that you can be part of this program by sending us a text message to the number 04820938833. Please have this number written down, saved there, because we are going to come a little bit later with a wonderful book, uh, which we are very happy to offer to you. And we'll come with a code for this uh, book, and uh, we'll give you that a little bit later. But it's good to have our panel all here, and uh, full panel today, it's good to have you with us, uh, Len. Thank you for joining. Yes, and hello listeners, and we're glad you've joined us today. Hi, Denise. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nick. I'm really looking forward to the study today. Brenton, it's good to have you part of this too. Thank you, Nick. Uh, like Denise, I think this is going to be a very exciting series of studies starting today. Lija, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. It's very good to be part of the panel. Hi, Jerry. It's good to have you again with us today. Good day, Nick. Always a pleasure to be here. Joe, thank you for being part of this. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be here again. And hi, Ken. It's good to have you. Uh, particularly, i like to thank you, Ken, for uh, taking uh, extra time to prepare this uh, Bible study. You are going to facilitate this discussion. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. Always a privilege to be here. Well, uh, Ken, if you could uh, please just take us through. Listeners, when we write something, we have a purpose for doing so. Sometimes a weighty one. Abraham Lincoln, for instance, wrote his famous Gettysburg Address in 1863, after the terrible devastation in the American Civil War battle there, which left about 7,000 soldiers dead. In that address, invoking the founding fathers, Lincoln expressed his belief that the Civil War was the ultimate test as to whether the nation created in 1776 would endure or would perish from the earth. Paul has a profound purpose that motivates his letter, partly because of his imprisonment and partly because of ongoing persecutions and temptations. The Ephesians are tempted to lose heart. Paul reminds them of what happened when they were converted, accepting Christ as their saviour and becoming part of the church. They have become Christ's Paul writes to awaken the believers in Ephesus to their full identity and privileges as followers of Christ. But before we get deeper into this, I'm going to ask Lita if she open prayer. Yes, sure. Glorious Father in heaven, thank you so much again for this opportunity to gather together to study your holy word. Please, Father, Receive us and bless us. Help us to understand 
the main topic of Paul's message, his purpose in writing this letter in order for the Ephesians to remember their identity role uh, in God's plan for his kingdom. Father, please help us to identify with him as he describes in so many details his devoted and sacrificial life for others. Father, please bless us and all those who are listening and help us with the power of your Holy Spirit to understand, to receive your message. Please guide us, lead us, and uh, help us to apply it in our lives in order to cooperate with you for our spiritual growth and transformation in order to become holy as you, Father, are holy. And in the end, to be with you and honor your holy name here on earth and in eternity. Father, we thank you so much for your promises and thank you that you hear us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you, Lydia. Our study starts off today in Ephesus. In Paul's day, this was a major city part of Asia, with a population of around 300,000 people. It had a major and busy seaport, but ships faced a difficult journey to get through the shallow waters to enter the harbour because it had started to stilt up. If you were to visit Ephesus today, as I did a few years ago, there is no water in sight, as it all has receded. Ephesus was also renowned for the temple of the pagan goddess Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which we will talk about later. It also boasted one of the greatest libraries in Asia. Paul's letter is believed to have been written in AD 62, during the reign of Emperor Nero, who put many people to death. So let's begin looking into Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Harry, what does Paul do when he arrives in Ephesus? Well, Ken, what uh, uh, Paul does is uh, he goes to Ephesus and immediately he, he seeks out a synagogue. And that seems to be the pattern with uh, with Paul. He um, he wants to connect with his fellow uh, Jews, his fellow countrymen. And he has a great burden for them. And uh, it says there in verse 19 of chapter 18, and he came to Ephesus and left them, that is uh, Aquila and Priscilla, with whom he'd been in, in Corinth. He'd, he'd just been in Corinth for about a year and a half. So the next port of call, so to speak, was Ephesus. And it says there, but he himself, that is Paul, entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. That was his pattern. And um, that's amazing when you read how he did this, that uh, often he would meet with stiff resistance. Sometimes he would have a, a positive result, but more often than not, they would turn against him. Now, at the time, the leaders of the church asked Paul to stay with them longer, but he had to go to Jerusalem. He said he would return, which he did. So, what strange event took place that led to widespread reverence for God after Paul returned? I think if I read, um, it's very to the point and very punchy. So, I'll read from Acts 19, verses 13 to 20. 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver, a huge amount of money in those days and today. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Just a, a quick comment here. Just before this passage, in verse 11, it said, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and their evil spirits left them. So these exorcists thought that by invoking the name of Jesus as some sort of incantation was enough to tap into that power. Now, you know, and they would call out, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, you know, they didn't even know <laughs> who they were talking about. That was sort of like twice removed almost. I command you to come out and we know what happened next. When this got around the city, there was a marvellous reformation and transformation in the people. I imagine that many of the Christians who had come in, perhaps it slipped back into their old habits or maybe never fully relinquished them when they came into the faith. And this was a wake-up call that God is not to be trifled with and that a real relationship with God is what is required. Don't live a double life. What an amazing story, but also amazing the fact that even if you touched a, a piece of clothing or a garment, that you could go to healing as well. Leecher, there was a very important lesson to be taken from this. What was it? This uh, book burning was voluntary act of all those who had converted to Christianity from paganism and magic. They did not destroy the libraries and the properties of other people, but they burned their own books of witchcraft, books they themselves has used in practicing their pagan religions. By this voluntary act, they publicly proclaimed that once they received the call of Jesus Christ to join his kingdom, they were cutting themselves off from their sinful past. So the book burning in Acts was a voluntary and joyous proclamation of liberation from the snares of sin and Satan. And their message was that the worship of God must not be diluted or mixed with the worship of anything or, or anyone else. Very important lesson. Brenton, you have a comment? Yes, these books that Lydia mentioned, uh, some of them books were actually methods or shall we say a methodology by which you could actually contact Satan personally and how he would 
um, give you instructions. He would tell you things about the future and that sort of thing. By burning these books, as Lydia said, um, these people are demonstrating that they're no longer willing to go to Satan for the source of help or for the source of knowing the future, that they have severed their relationship with him completely. And I think that's actually very important because the cost of these books, I think it mentions. I was going to mention the cost of these books that they burned. It was well over half a million. It was a lot of money. You can see that these people had made a thorough commitment to Christ and rejected what they had been living, practicing and believing before. Mary, yeah, a long time ago, uh, I'm talking now about the mid-70s, the late-70s, uh, this is before I became a Christian, I I collected all kinds of uh, spiritualistic books, actually, which they, uh, in fact, were. Um, I'm not talking about uh, witchcraft, but uh, books that um, were leaning in that direction, so to speak. And uh, basically had all kinds of information about all the uh, great spiritual leaders. But essentially they were, you could almost say, uh, spiritualistic books. What interested me was to find that uh, woven in between uh, all this uh, information in the books was um, often quotes from the scriptures. And when I, when I started taking an interest in, in the Bible, I, I had to make a decision, and it became obvious that I, I couldn't have both books side by side. It was either one or the, or the other. And when I committed to uh, Christianity and, and became a baptized member, I burnt all these books. That was in the, that was in the time when you still had an incinerator. <laughs> and, uh, that's how I got rid of them because I thought, no, this, they can't coincide. You know, the, this so-called wisdom of all the, uh, other spiritualistic leaders that, that, that didn't rhyme. So I had to get rid of them. I think that's a very important lesson there. And I feel many people today who still get these types of books really don't know what they're getting into, and it can be very, very dangerous. Yeah. Paul's preaching in this large and busy city was very effective and drew large crowds. Not everyone was happy about this, as it was impacting sales of silver idols representing Artemis and generally the curate's business. Brenton. Why was this and what did one of the businessmen do? Well, basically, if you boil down the, the whole um, section in scripture on it, which I'll read in just a second, the bottom line is that Demetrius saw that their trade was diminishing very rapidly because of Paul's preaching. And um, really, the it says he was a silversmith and they made these things out of silver. Um they were actually little, like little representations of their idols that you could put in all their gods that you could put in your home, but you could also wear them. They, they were also, believe it or not, can made of terracotta. Now, that's rather interesting, but the bottom line is <laughs> he sees that because of Paul's influence under the spirit of God throughout Ephesus, that their trade is diminishing rapidly. So he calls all the uh, associated trades together because it wasn't just those who made, um, like himself, who were silversmiths, 
there was a process by which you started out with some silver and eventually you ended up with the engraving of the god on your um, particular idol. Now, what's happening here is I'll read it. For a certain man named Demetrius, the silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. So far, so good. It's true what he says. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all Asia, this Paul, notice the words, this Paul, it's almost spoken uh, with a total disregard for Paul as a person. That's the way I uh, read this, has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are not made are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theatre with one accord having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Interestingly enough, Ken, I've actually stood in that amphitheatre. <laughs> I must admit the day I stood there, I could almost hear, great is the Diana of the Ephesians, echoing in my mind. It was like the hair standing up on the back of your neck when you actually stood in there and realised that this is exactly where Paul wanted to go. <clears throat> What's happened here is, and this is interesting, Demetrius is actually claiming for these gods something that they weren't. He's suggesting that they are gods, whereas they only ever believed that they were representations of the gods. But, of course, truth is always one of the first casualties when a riot starts or when uh, trouble begins. And so this is what's happening here. <laughs> Imagine shouting, great as Diana of the Ephesians, for two hours. Number one, you'd have a very... um shall we say, hoarse voice after two hours, I would think. But number two, I think the fact that Paul's companions wouldn't allow him to go into the amphitheatre, because I believe personally he would have been killed had he gone in there. I believe God's hand was over it all. Um, and I think that's something that we can look forward to as we continue the rest of our studies, that God was protecting his servant at a time when it seemed as though the whole city was in uproar over what he was teaching. The question is, is there anything we can learn from this story that Brenton has just shared with us? Well, number one, truth often gets in the way of what people like to do. And in this case, Demetrius and the other workers who worked for him it got in, truth got in the way of their profession, their money making business. The other thing is the crowd. Crowd psychology is a strange thing. I once attended a football match and I'm generally a fairly uh, self possessed kind of person. And the crowd was yelling out things at the umpire and I found myself doing it. When I did that, I was absolutely astounded. Why did I do that? It's simply the effect of crowd psychology. 
we need to be very careful of crowd psychology. Now, just one little comment. Hear these people shouting, Great is Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. And Brenton posed the question. Perhaps that their voices became hoarse. Well, I can tell you, they did become a little hoarse. I'm sure God was looking after Paul here. As the crowd is believed to have been around 25,000, shouted and carried on for two hours non-stop. Eventually, the crowd was dispersed by the town clerk as Paul met with the believers before leaving the city. Paul's letter to the Ephesians was read aloud in house churches of believers in greater Ephesus, and after his departure, the Christian movement grew and multiplied. As we said at the start of today's study, Paul's letter is the Bible in a nutshell. In these, Paul covers many important points that pertain to the Christian life. What are these? Well, Ken, I've got 10 or 11. So um, the first one is that Paul greets the church members in Ephesus. Uh, secondly, he thanks God for the um, for the spiritual blessings that he has poured out on the faithful church members. He also offers a prayer of gratitude for their faithfulness. He encourages their faith by explaining God's mercy to them and his forgiveness of their sins. He reminds them, too, that though they are Gentiles, they are members of the body of Christ, that is the church. These Gentile believers and the Jewish believers in Jesus are part of spiritual Israel and therefore they are all heirs of eternal life. He admonishes them to be at peace and to love one another uh, through the Spirit and to be united with fellow believers in Jesus. He urges them to keep living their new life, being devoted to Christ as his Spirit empowers them to resist evil. He reminds them that they were once in darkness, but now they are children of the light. So to live as imitators of Christ, forgiving one another. He urges them to be strong in the Lord, for God, uh, for the Lord and his spirit will protect them from Satan's attacks if they trust his word and keep on praying for all believers. And finally, final greetings, he says he's sending them a companion to encourage their faith in Jesus. Well, certainly some wonderful things there. I want to take a look at some of these, and we'll start off with Nick. How does Paul start and end his letter? Well, Ken and uh, panel, uh, first of all, uh, Paul identifies himself as the author of uh, uh, this book, uh, and uh, he states that uh, he's an apostle of Christ, and he wishes uh, them grace, peace from Jesus. Even though, you know, uh, Paul uh, mentioned in other parts uh, that uh, Jesus revealed himself to him. He was not part of the 12 disciples, but he considered himself part of that, let's say, uh, closer group to whom Jesus revealed himself. And Paul continues that... Um, he said that through him, as a, as a tool in God's hands, he wants to share the grace of God and peace from Jesus. And he also states that um, towards the, the ending of his letter here about how important is love which comes from God. 
the Father, because uh, yeah, we are dealing here with Ephesians, which um, they were all their attention to say so was into how to be a successful person in in that time. But Apostle Paul is reminding us all again today, as he reminded those people in in that time, that we really need to know God and to learn from God his amazing love, amazing grace he offers us. If I could, Ken, offer our listeners a wonderful book today, which we prepared, and that's called God's Amazing Grace. It's a daily devotional. And my dear friend, if you like this book in your hands, I believe you'll benefit a lot about uh, the teachings, which is from the Bible, of course. Please send us a text message to 04-8209-8883. The code is SABS1. SA stands for South Australia, BS for Bible study, and uh, 1. Don't put any space in between SABS1. Send a message to 04-8209-8883. Jenny, could I ask you to just give us a little bit of background about that book? Yeah, just uh, a few sentences by the author, uh, Ellen White. She uh, says here in the foreword, Ellen White described grace as an attribute of God exercised toward undeserving human beings. We did not seek after it, she marveled, but it was sent in search of us. She was overwhelmed by the thought that God in his infinite love had extended grace to beings who are in rebellion against him. Over and over, she returned to this theme in her writings, always pointing to the cross of Christ as proof that divine grace knows no limits. I've got the copy at home, uh, Nick and, uh, and listeners, and it's, it's a beautiful devotional. It really is a beautiful devotional, and uh, I highly recommend it to you. All right, I would just like to share with you, why is there a question about who is the author of Ephesians? Now, when Paul begins, he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But there are some literary differences shown up mainly in the book of Ephesians where where people have questioned, well, who actually wrote this? Because it's a little bit different. And in this case, Paul exhibited a an exalted, a rather sophisticated literary style He had quite long sentences. He repeated himself quite often and had various metaphors. Now, he has used this style in other letters, but it's particularly pronounced in the book of Ephesians, which makes it stand out because of its literary style. I don't know why Paul did it, particularly in this book, but it shows up very much. Jerry, he talks about being a prisoner of Jesus. In other words, he is bound to him. Would you explain this? Yeah, in fact, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Paul says he refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And uh, in fact, in um, 
Ephesians 6, he also refers to himself as an ambassador in chains. Now, that was quite literally the case uh, with Paul. As we know, if we go back to Acts chapter 18, it says there that uh, when he left the Corinth to go to Ephesus, it says he had his hair cut off at uh, Chentria, if that's the way you say it, uh, for he had taken a vow. So after he stays in Ephesus for just a little while, they wanted him to stay there, but he says um, he couldn't stay longer because he had to keep his, um, his, his vow and go to a coming feast in Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, uh, within no time, the, the Jews who hated him were all over him. And they falsely accused him of, of, him of bringing the, the Gentiles into the inner court of the temple. And um, anyway, it was only because of the intervention, if you like, of the, of the Roman guard that he wasn't torn to pieces there. They actually saved him from the, from the Jews, but they, had, they put him in chains as well. And we know that um, when he ended up in Rome, he was a prisoner, in, in, in fact, in chains. For Christ, so yeah, I don't know how you would uh, say it otherwise. He he was literally in chains, but he, he had also committed himself fully. That was the, the one great purpose of his life to be in the service of his Lord. And um, I, I don't know if you want to see that as a, as a prisoner of Christ in that sense, but um, maybe the other panel members would like to reflect on that. Brenton, I I think he. Um was a prisoner of Christ in the in the spiritual sense and he had um Ken, I think we would all agree as a panel that Paul did nothing by half measures. Paul was either fully in or he wasn't in at all. And uh, when he found Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he was fully in. And uh in fact I read a statement only this morning that said there has never been another person who was more devoted to the Lord and more on fire for the Lord than Paul. So God used him mightily. So what uh, Jerry is saying here is quite true. But Ephesians 1, 16 and 17 adds, I'll um, preface this by reading verse 15 as well. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, this tells you that Paul has not been in contact with these people for some time. The Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians is one of the prison epistles written along with Colossians, Philemon, and I think one of the others. It says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I believe Paul is uh, pleading here for the Ephesians to have their spiritual understanding enlightened because remember they're in a society where we have found out that the Ephesians during the time of Paul and during the time that these people became Christians, there were some 50, five zero, some 50 gods that were worshipped in the Ephesian area. So the name of the true God Paul is really saying here, I'm pleading in my prayers for you that God will give you spiritual wisdom to be able to not only enunciate, but also to be able to proclaim 
and show in your lives uh, what the true God really is, who the true God really is and what he has done. And that sets him apart from all the other gods that are being worshipped around the, the district at the, at the moment. I think it's a very insightful comment. The word for wisdom, <laughs> believe it or not, um, Ken is Sophia, S-O-P-H-I-A. And uh, it's rather an interesting word. It's also found in the book of Luke. But it talks about how we need our spiritual insight, our spiritual eyes to be opened in all the order that we may reflect and understand even at a deeper level Christ's love for us. Phil, you have a comment? Yes, just in, in relation to, G, uh, to Paul being a prisoner, a prisoner of Jesus. Well, I guess... He didn't see himself as a prisoner. He wasn't imprisoned. He was fully surrendered to God and he was held captive by God's majesty and Christ's beauty and what Mm. Jesus had done for him. So it was not imprisoned in a negative sense, but he was just, um, he was actually truly free. Yeah. I would say Paul was both a prisoner of and for Jesus. Mm. He totally belonged to the Lord, so in that sense he was a prisoner. But because of his work and and sharing about Jesus Christ, he was put in prison. So he was a prisoner both of and for Jesus Christ. I was just wanting to add, uh, Ken, that um, what Len said I agree with and Joe as well. Uh, What's interesting in a prisoner takes orders i've never been in jail but i've visited people in jail and you take orders when you're ordered to do something you do it paul is um whilst joe what she said is true about him being free he always had the freedom to say no but he was so devoted to the lord that whenever the lord gave him his instructions or his orders for the day he was ready to go and do it i wonder if you listeners have any idea of what is the most noble profession in the world? Some people might say doctor. So a truck driver might say truck drivers because they supply the food in the supermarkets, etc., etc. But the most noble profession in the world is the profession that the Apostle Paul was engaged in, in reconciliation between God and man. And in his time, there were two distinct groups of people in the in the world. There were the Jews and there were the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And Paul was engaged in bringing both groups to the Lord. And in chapter 2, he mentions some things in saying that the uh, non Christians, those who had not committed their lives to Christ, were as, as it were, they were dead. And then he uses the opposite description to say that those who had given their lives to Christ were alive. Now you might wonder, well, what on earth is he talking about? Well, really, when you think about it, there is no hope of eternal life for anyone who does not commit their lives to Christ. And then there is the reassurance of those who do commit their lives to Christ of eternal life. So you can see 
where the metaphor of dead and alive comes. Now I want to read to you the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And this is what he says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. Who does he mean? He's talking about those who follow Satan. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath or punishment. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And then comes probably the most or almost the favourite. Nick, I'm just going to rephrase this. Then we come to some verses which rank almost as the most favourite verses in the Bible. It is by grace you have been saved. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us by Christ Jesus. And here come those very famous words. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what I was saying earlier, and I've just read through those 10 verses, Paul is saying that a person who is committed to Christ, who's been freed from the way of sin and death, is like someone who is alive, is alive, but those who continue to live in their sinful ways, he describes them as dead. And for any of us who've committed our lives to the Lord, we can identify with those that Paul was talking about who are alive in Christ. We observe here that in uh, in chapter 3, verse 19, uh, in his prayer, Paul is focusing also in the love of Christ. So he is mentioning, if I can read a little bit um, before that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray to you, being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. And know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, 
This is a very deep speaking about the love of Christ, the love that every every person has to experience himself about it. So has to be uh, rooted in Christ to be able to experience. Yes, in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3, uh, Ken, we sort of go on from what Lydia has just read in chapter 3 and verse 19. I'd like to share this just briefly. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. I'll stop there for a minute, Ken. Uh, when a person becomes a Christian, it isn't just a, ch- a change of philosophy or a change of ideas. Uh, becoming a true Christian in the true sense of the word, when you're baptized, when you're um, buried under the water and you rise to start a new life in Christ, it's a total transformation. And I think Paul is really emphasizing that walking The walk that he's talking about is the Christian life. He's talking about the day-by-day life of the Ephesians as they live in a city that has 50 gods and has worshipped various things and philosophies have worshipped all over the place. He's saying, in my prayers, I'm praying for you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you're called. In other words, when you heard about Jesus, when you heard about his saving grace that uh, Len so eloquently touched on earlier on, when you've heard all of those things, your life should be such. The walk, the daily walk, uh, the things you do during the day, the interaction you have with those who are not Christians, with the, the Gentiles, with the heathen, Your walk should be such that recommends your lifestyle to them. Then in verse 2, he says he wants you to walk with all lowliness and gentleness. Now, it's interesting and long-suffering. As we know, they're some of the fruits of the Spirit that are mentioned in another one of his um, writings. Long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Lowliness is a fruit of the Spirit. Bearing with one another in love. And he says, endeavouring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's appealing for unity. I think we always need to remember one thing, um, Ken, when we talk about unity. Unity in the spirit that he's talking about is we accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We accept uh, the basic uh, tenets of the Christian faith. But that also allows for people to see things from a different uh, perspective. So I would class this as unity in the faith, but also unity in diversity. Yes, my dear friend uh, listening today, we want to get your attention to our free offer for today, which is a book called God's Amazing Grace. Actually, it's a daily devotional. You'll love to have this book in your hands. Just a bit of information about this. When God gave his son to the world, he made it possible for men and women to be perfect by the use of every capability of their beings to the glory of God. In Christ, he gave to them the riches of his grace and knowledge of his will as they would empty themselves of self and learn to walk in humility, leaning on God for guidance, 
wonderful uh, devotional, please send us a text message to 0482098383. The code for this book is SABS1. Thank you, Nick. Yes, well, we've been looking at um, basically an overview and a summary of the book of Ephesians. I guess we will be discussing these chapters in more detail in coming studies. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, I'd like to summarize it because we probably don't have the time to read the whole lot. Uh, Paul in these verses urges us, urges us to display the same kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing love as Christ does. We are encouraged to walk in the way of love. Me is no longer the center of my thinking and doing. It reminds us that idolatry is much more subtle and powerful than bowing down before a statue, that it can take many forms and distracts from the truly important things in life. He warns that we not be deceived by empty or hollow words, and we've been discussing that in previous uh, weeks about deception, and advises us to be spirit-filled rather than filled with wine and foolishness, urges us to be wise, filled with gratitude to God, and curious, curiously. It in It encourages us to be good, not because we want to become saints, but because we already are. And therefore, our behavior should reflect that, being the children of light. And this gives me much hope that someone such as I is considered a child of light and a saint. It's a wonder and a marvel of the gospel. Yeah, just uh, uh, to continue what uh, Joe was saying, very practical things here in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 6, if I could draw your attention to these verses, it says here, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When we hear today this word discipline doesn't fall good in the ears, particularly in the ears of young ones. But also society, it's it's so, you know, removing from these wonderful teachings that we cannot even pronounce these words discipline these days. And it continues here, to say even to the bone servants at that time, you know, says, obey your, your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. You see the words there, sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of I service as people pleasers, but as bone servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this is he will receive back 
from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. What a wonderful counseling, what wonderful teaching there. If we will apply that in our life today, my dear friend, we'll live in a different world. Why not to start here and now with me and you? Please. Yes, in the last um, verses of Ephesians, we have a metaphor about the armor of God. And it's talking about us being, as individuals, being part of a spiritual battle between uh, God and between Satan. I'd like to read verses 11, 12, and 13 of this section. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And then it repeats, therefore put on the full armor of God. And um, this armor of God is everything that he provides for us as individual Christians. And it shows that our human effort is totally inadequate to fight this battle, but God's power is invincible. And four times it uses the word, put on the armor and stand. So we're not meant to go into battle. God goes into battle on our behalf. We rely on his power um, through prayer, through the study of his word, through the Holy Spirit, and we know that and he is victorious. All right, Brenton? Yes, if if we could summarise the book of Ephesians, we could uh, divide it into four sections, I believe, Ken, uh, because the book of Ephesians is talking about Christ's church. And the church is identified as four different um, things in this book. First of all, in chapter 1, verse 23, the church is identified as a body. Now, that's interesting because people tend uh, can to think of the church as a building. The church is people. It's a moving, functioning organism. It's something that's out there in the community doing good. The second uh, feature that the church is um, described as being is as a building in a temple. Now, certainly writing to the Ephesians, they would have been able to identify with that because they had the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world in their city. That is described in Ephesians 2, 20 and 21. Christ Church is referred to as a, a building with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Thirdly, I always love this analogy, uh, Ken, the church is a bride. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's talking about the most intimate relationship on earth, and that's the relationship that God wishes to have with his church. Christ, the bridegroom, wishes to have with the church, his bride. And in summary, uh, I think Denise has covered it pretty well. The church is an army. We don't spend enough time on this. Remember, the book of Ephesians was written to a church group. So when we talk about putting on the whole armour of God, we often tend to look at that from an individualistic point of view, whereas I believe it's talking to the church as a whole. 
The church itself must put on the whole armor of God in order to be able to withstand the devil. Um, the devil is not cooperating with the church. The, the devil is totally antagonistic to the work of Christ and the church. So we need to have on the whole armor of God in order to not only withstand the devil, but as it says, I think, in about verse 12, having done all to stand. In other words, last man standing, the last one standing in the battle between good and evil will be God's church, which is triumphant. That's a brief summary of uh, the book of Ephesians. Thank you, Brenton. Well, listeners, I'm afraid we're out of time again. If you have never read the Bible, Ephesians would be a wonderful place to start. It contains just about everything you need to know about your walk with Jesus. Easy to follow advice and information. Remember, this world is going to pass. Jesus is coming soon. Do not miss your opportunity to receive Jesus as your Savior. He wants you in his kingdom. Joe, would you close in prayer? Certainly. Heavenly Father, thank you for the letter to the Ephesians. Encourages us because they too were people like us with similar problems, yet you call them saints. Help us to catch a glimpse of how much you cherish all your children and be challenged, moved and empowered to walk in the light, to walk in the love as Jesus did and does. We are weak and faulty and let you down often, but you never give up on us. Continue to bless us with your spirit so that we too can be the people you know we can become so that others may see goodness and Jesus in our hearts. In his precious name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you everyone for uh, your participation today. Indeed, we started a, a great journey and we are going to look into this uh, book, uh, Ephesians a little bit more in detail as we go. And our next um, topic is God's grand Christ-centered plan. And you know, my dear friend, you can still request this free offer, which we happily give to you today. It's called God's Amazing Grace. It's a daily devotion, and that can help a lot with uh, going along with the studies in um, in the book of Ephesians. If you like that book, please send us a text message to 0482098383. The code is SABS1. And on the same number, you can send us a question, a thought, if you have in regard to this topic which we discussed today. Until next time, may God richly bless you. And have a wonderful walk in the footsteps of Jesus. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, He
Tell Jesus.